So, Father, we pray that you would help us now pay attention, quiet our minds and pay attention, that we may know what you say. There's so many people who come here on the weekend, Lord, and they're all so different. We're all so different. Only you can speak to each of us according to our need. I pray that you would. And that we would hear the message in this passage clearly. It'll be challenging. So I pray that you would give us humble, open hearts to trust and love you, that you know what is true and you know what is best, and that we would obey you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Doing well? I am too. I'm super excited to be here. I wake up early on Sunday morning just buzzing with anticipation that we get to do this together. Not a small thing. You live on this side of the cross of Jesus. You can look back at history and know how much God loves you. You don't have to wonder. He put it in writing he acted and proved it in history. And now we together as a family of faith get to listen to our Father teach us. There's nothing better, nothing more important than hearing the voice of God in Scripture. And I shared with the 9 a.m. service, uh, before we open our Bibles, do you have your Bibles? Yes. Open them to James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you. In the seats, take it with you. If you need one at home, you can have that one. Call that one yours. Put your name in it. Put stickers on it. Whatever it is that you do. Mark your territory and your possessions. We want you to have a Bible. I was telling the 9 a.m. service at an embarrassingly short period of time ago, I had a very simple little revelation. Nothing supernatural, just something clicked in my mind, and I want to offer it to you before we listen to James. And I've, I've known this, I've, I've taught this, it just hadn't really clicked. And that is this, God is a person. And I don't mean that He's like us, He's, he's very, very different from us. God is holy. He's the Creator, we're the created. What I mean is, is that he actually exists as a person, mind, will, emotions. And the reason that was revolutionary for me, it just, I had this simple thought. If God is a person, when I meet with him in prayer, when I speak to him in prayer, when I open his word and ask him to speak to me, I can pay attention to him the way I pay attention to another human being. And maybe you're like me, maybe you're too fidgety with your cell phone. I am much too fidgety with my cell phone, and I'm trying to quit, but anyway, we're all in that struggle, I think. When my wife or my children or somebody else is speaking to me and I'm fidgeting with my phone, I'm being rude. No excuse for that. It's inattentive. It's distracting. It's dishonoring to them to not give them my undivided attention. And so it is with God. Anytime I care to, because he's always awake, never tired, always attentive, always loving, I can pay attention to him. And that's what I want to invite you to do. To not listen to God as a concept, to not listen to a sermon as an idea, because you're not in relationship with a concept or a cause or a set of values. 
There's a lot of those things. There's some wonderful organizations that put their values up on a wall, and you can read what they stand about and what they stand for, but you're not in relationship with the set of values. You're in relationship with the person who happens to be the eternal God who made the universe, who made you in His image so that you would know Him and love Him, and loved you so very much that when He saw you lost in sin and rebellion, He actually came in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, to enter into your exact human experience, live righteously in your place, and die so that you could live. And if you're a Christian and you already know that and you already have Him, now you get to pay attention to Him. And what He has to say in the book of James, as I'm about to explain to you, is exceedingly tough. Someone told me between services, when I read ahead and read James chapter 5, I thought to myself, huh, I wonder what he's going to do with that. Well, I thought the same thing. But God is going to speak, and if you will listen and trust him and do what he asks, your life will be different forever. Let's pray and pay attention to him, shall we? I'm going to pray in a way to leave you a little space so that you can leave the cares and the troubles that you brought in with you in his hands and just ask Him to give you the grace to pay attention to Him. Father, here we are, Your children. Lord Jesus, Your disciples whom You saved. Thank You. Thank You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for loving us in this way. We leave our cares and troubles with You. Give my brothers and sisters time and space and will now, Lord, to turn their attention fully to you. In Christ's name, amen. My wife is an educator. I've been a part-time educator dabbling in the classroom on both sides of the desk for about 20 years now. And we have a long-running joke in our family that educators like to give pretty simple ideas, big, fancy labels, probably to confuse everybody else. Every guild is like that. Every tribe has its own special terminology, and if uh, you ever hear one of the terms, sometimes it's not immediately clear what it means, and then you ask, and you go, oh yeah, I get that. Why'd you call it that? That's weird. One of those phrases is cognitive dissonance. Have you heard that one? Cognitive dissonance. What is cognitive dissonance? Any educators here who want to give it a crack? Without confusing the crowd? When what you believe and what you see are intention, you experience cognitive dissonance. It's like this. You go through the world thinking that you understand things. You give some things as settled. You don't even realize you do until there's some new piece of information that clashes with what you already believe and what you think you understand. It's like, I don't know, being on a sports team and discovering that one of your teammates who weighs 320 pounds is much faster than you are. And you have no way of making sense that he's that big and he moves like that. When he passes you in a sprint, you're experiencing cognitive dissonance. <laughs> Has the world stopped? Am I in a movie? What is going on? The big guy just flew by me like a track athlete. What's happening here?
This passage, James chapter 5, is filled with cognitive dissonance for anybody, but especially Americans in the 21st century. Because James is now going to speak to the rich, and he doesn't have one good word to say. And that's very different from the way we live, the way humans have always lived. We've made a small industry out of really paying attention to the rich, their opinions, their decisions, their relationships, their fashion choices. It's really interesting. Kanye West made a profession of faith in Christ a few weeks ago. Did you happen to hear about that? Oh, yes, you did. And I've been amazed at how many people have texted, called, and stopped me saying, what do you think about Kanye? <laughs> what do I know? I don't have the faintest idea. Everything I've heard looks pretty good so far. Time will tell. Evidence seems real. But why isn't anybody asking about Larry? Larry, your neighbor who got saved, why aren't people calling and texting and group chatting each other talking about Larry? Here's why. Larry's not rich. It's not that nobody cares, but nobody knows Larry. He's not a person of importance. He's not in headlines. When he decides to wear one shirt versus the other, it doesn't make the news. His views on politics are completely unknown and even more unimportant. Nobody cares. Why? We care because Kanye's a tastemaker. He's an influencer. He has money. He married into money. He literally moves untold millions of dollars with a single decision. And everything in human nature and in America in the 21st century, it's a cottage industry to really pay attention. And then comes James. And here are a handful of verses that are some of the harshest in the New Testament. And when you read what James says to the rich and about the rich, you're going to experience cognitive dissonance because nothing in our culture and probably nothing in your lifetime has prepared you to be comfortable with language like this or think that this is true, what James is going to say. And one of the ways that people deal with cognitive dissonance, by the way, an unhelpful way, by the way, is to just reject the new information. Can't be true. Fake news. No, nope, don't buy it. You go home and tell your mom that the 320-pound kid was five yards ahead of you in that sprint. She goes, nah, don't buy it. You were having a bad day. You pulled a hamstring, you know, at the... I don't know, it doesn't make any sense. I don't believe it. Let me invite you to believe what James is saying. Because James is now going to denounce the rich. He's going to return to one of the themes that has been running through his little letter. This letter has been written to persecuted Jewish Christians who have been scattered. They've literally run for their lives, run for their welfare in the ancient world. And now James is going to turn to the rich who are oppressing them, who have begun the misery and added to the misery by treating them terribly, by doing things like oppressing them, he says earlier in the letter, and dragging them into court. Because that's the way money works. Somebody said that the, another version of the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules. And that's what they're experiencing. And if you're not fabulously wealthy, 
You may not know what to make of this, especially if you're a Christian. But I want you to look at James chapter 5 and let James tell you how you can use money to absolutely wreck your life. Very few things in life have the capacity to wreck a life as, as quickly and thoroughly as money does. James chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Won't find that on Instagram anytime soon, will you? <laughs> We joked of the pastoral staff, hard to find a memory verse in this passage. This is not the sort of thing anybody puts on a t-shirt. But listen, let him work, hear him out. Because money is a, is a tool of tremendous power and it can either save life or destroy it. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now, I don't believe for a moment that James is confused or ignorant. Gold and silver do not actually rust. That rust, if they did, would not actually consume a human body. What to make of this language? James is using deliberately prophetic language reminiscent of the Old Testament. Stark, vivid, awful, frightening language because behind the language lies a great practical and eternal truth. The rich, who are not accustomed to weeping, who until something terrible happens have little cause to weep, James says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miserings that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are mouth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Remember that. And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who kept you, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And as I read this passage, knowing that it didn't speak directly to me because I trust and love Jesus... And I'm not wealthy by any stretch. So I am not one of these who has been able to pile up sums of gold and silver and luxurious clothing. But as I read this passage, the first sentence in verse 5 brought me up short. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. By global standards and by historic standards, yes, I have. 
See, one of the ways to deal with this passage in your little struggle with cognitive dissonance is you read the word rich and you say, well, I'm not that, so I guess I'll just sit this one out. Don't do it. By historic standards in the course of human history, almost all of us are rich. Not everyone here. Some people are just barely hanging on. But most of us are rich by historic standards. And we're, we've reached a weird season in our life where one of our boys moved away from home to start his career. We have three people and four cars. Some of them are pretty old. But did you hear what I just told you? We are three human beings and we have four cars. Why do we hold on to the fourth one? To surf. Because you can put the surfboards in one of the cars, but it's so much nicer in this other one, so we'll just hold on to this one. Pray it doesn't break. That's luxury. We've created a culture that is unique in human history. People who are poor in America are more likely to be overweight. Did you know that? And I won't get into that whole thing of why that's true and the perverse things that create that reality and why healthy food is more expensive, but we've created a situation in which relatively few people actually suffer anything like hunger. Some do, and if you need help, please let us know, but very few people do relative to the state of the world and what hundreds of millions of people have lived through. We live on earth in what James would certainly call luxury and self-indulgence. So I pay a little more attention just to make sure that the things he's directing to people who I think have little in common with me don't have something actually important to say to me. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. How do you use money to ruin your life? The first thing James says, and it's the easiest thing to do because human beings have this tremendous capacity of denial when we think about life and when we think about death and when we think about money, the first thing James says people are doing, the rich are doing to ruin their lives with money is simply this, they're acting like it will last forever. Look again at verse 2, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. That corrosion will be evidence against you. What's he saying? He's saying you've piled up all this stuff together and you don't realize it's already slipping through your hands. You have gold and silver and wealth and clothes piled up, but you don't realize that you won't be enjoying it for long because it opens with this first terrible sentence, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. They're not on you yet, but they're coming, and the pile of wealth you can put between yourself and hardship and judgment will not protect you. You're acting like your money will last forever. And maybe you've done it too. Maybe when you get paid, you think to yourself, as I have sometimes, this is the paycheck that I'm going to stretch out. You ever have that experience? Have you ever noticed that something always comes up? 
It's always something, isn't it? That's the nature of life. Yesterday, I got the happiest of experiences. An Amazon box arrived at our front door. <laughs> and I had a luxury self-indulgence kind of experience because I got a picture on my smartphone showing me that the box was at the front door. And I thought to myself, what a time to be alive. Some complete stranger has come from who knows where to my front door, put the goods I ordered on the front door, took a picture of it to prove it, and left. And all I have to do is get in one of our four cars and drive home <laughs> and open the box. And what was in the box was very important. It was another set of headphones. And I opened it up and I showed the family, look, these are really great, I got a good deal. And my wife asked a very important question that connects to the sermon. She said, how many does this make? And I thought, I said, I don't want to talk about it, it's a sore subject, and mind your business, because it was birthday money, and uh, I got a good deal, and 20% deal, free delivery, well, what's it to you? And I put them on, and I tried them, and they're awesome, I've never had noise canceling before, they were only $50, it's completely outrageous. But as I looked at them, and I started handling them, I thought, I'm thinking to myself that this is the one that's going to last for life, and you know what? They won't. I've already dropped them. <laughs> I'll almost certainly lose them or break them. I'll do something to them because that's the way life actually works. We live for money, we live for possessions, we live for bank accounts and positions and possessions as if those things will last forever, and they won't. This is James' warning. And look at the end of verse 3. You have laid up treasure in the last days. It's a very important sentence. What does it mean? It means simply this, that the people James is addressing are living in the last days, that the return of the Lord, according to James, is imminent. What are the last days? Biblically speaking, the last days are the time between the departure of the Lord and His return. And James says, you're doing something foolish. You're living on the doorstep of judgment, and what you're doing is piling treasure up. Maybe you don't believe that the Lord's return is near. You should. There's nothing in the Bible that awaits fulfillment for the Lord to return. His return is imminent. But if you're skeptical about that, and you shouldn't be, may I remind you of the imminence of your own death? We all live on borrowed time. We all live with the certainty that someday, unless the Lord returns, death will come. And we have absolutely no idea and very little control of when that day will be. And James says to the wealthy, you're acting as if your wealth will last you forever. What you don't know is it's already being destroyed and you've committed a further error, a second sin. You're piling it up in the face of judgment. The worst war in this nation's history by far 
was not the first or the second world war, it was the civil war. Because all casualties were ours. Because families were torn asunder and brother killed brother. And by God's grace, the union was saved. It looked for a time as if it might not be so. And we really had two nations within our territory at war with each other, so separate, so independent, so much at war that the Confederate side had its own money. But when the tide turned and it was quite evident that the union would win and that the true United States would be preserved. Can you imagine the folly of selling everything off to buy Confederate currency? Someone who knows that the Union has already won, it's just a matter of a little more fire and a little more blood before peace is declared, is going to tell that person, you fool, that's going to be worthless paper in about two weeks. What are you doing? May I suggest to you that earthly wealth is only Confederate money? It's only good for this kingdom. It's only good for this age, which is quickly coming to a close. And James says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. The truth is this. Money's either going to be a testimony to your righteousness or evidence of people's guilt. Money always tells you the real story, which is why Jesus spoke so much of it. Remember, this is James, the brother of the Lord. Sometimes you can tell how much he's depending upon the words of Jesus. I think it's likely that James had this teaching from the gospel in Luke in mind as he wrote these words in James chapter 5, Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus is speaking to disciples who have literally left everything to follow him. Some of them were prosperous commercial fishermen who left family businesses who were successful enough to have employees, and they have left all of those things to live day by day independence on whatever people are willing to give them. And Jesus turns to them one day and comforts them. Luke chapter 12 is in the middle of teaching where he's telling them something that also creates Cognitive dissonance where people are very likely to say, Jesus, you don't simply know what you're talking about. Those were your days or that was your attitude, but I live in the real world with bills and worries and I need food and I need clothing and I need all these things. And Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 12, don't worry about those things. Don't set your heart on those things. Your father knows that you need them and listen to how he teaches disciples. Any disciples of Jesus here this morning? Yeah? Ready to listen to the master? Yes. Here's what he told you. Fear not, little flock. I love that. He says, you're my little flock. What does that make him? A good shepherd. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You're worried about what you're going to eat and drink. Let me tell you something. You have nothing to worry about, my little flock, because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your Father who owns everything is delighted to give it to you. Like all loving and good fathers, they delight in sharing and giving what they have to their children. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Here's something countercultural. 
You sure you're a disciple? Listen to Jesus. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Why sell? Because they'd already left everything. They'd left, as they told him, homes and families, houses and lands. Those things were already behind them. So Jesus says, you don't need to worry about everything. You're my flock and your father is pleased. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So if you don't have anything to give, use financial terms, get liquid. Have something in your hands so that you can give to the needy. And here's why. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus says you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can provide for yourselves treasures and money bags that do not grow old, that are not subject to failure, that no one can steal, and no natural disaster can destroy. You know how many times God has been distressed over the state of the pension or the stock market? You know how many times God has watched the economy and the real estate market and been troubled? Not once. He owns everything. He says so. In the Bible, God says the gold and the silver are mine. Cattle on a thousand hills, it's all mine. It's all His. He delights in sharing it with those He saves. He delights in sharing it with His children. So the specific teaching of Jesus is, if you don't have much to give, you would be wise to sell something that you have so that you can give because you're going to translate some of that confederate money that won't be here long into something that will never be taken from you. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And Christians all across history hear that, read that, and say to themselves, nice idea, not very practical. And that's how people ruin their lives with money. Just like that. You see, money always tells the true story. I was fascinated by this little verse, this little section of the verse in verse 3. It says, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you. That word evidence kind of caught my attention. And as someone who once thought he should be a lawyer, I decided I'd call two different people. Highly professional, very skilled, very distinguished each in their fields. One retired from a long and distinguished career in law enforcement at the highest levels in Southern California. The other is a career prosecutor. I asked them both separately the same question. Tell me about money as evidence. They both said the same thing. Money is excellent evidence. The trail of money helps us solve all kinds of crimes, many of which have nothing to do with money itself. It can lead not only to financial crimes like fraud, but to worse things like murder. Here's a for instance. 
Some low-level criminal who doesn't appear to have any money is imprisoned and quickly bails out. The smart investigators ask themselves, he does not appear to have a penny to his name. How did he bail out with so much money so quickly? Follow the money and see where he got it. Let's make sure it's clean. And oftentimes it's not. Career prosecutor who now works on big, heavy things, says the trail of money leads us to things like terror and weapons to engage in terror. They always follow the money. May I tell you that God does too? Here's the difference. He doesn't have to investigate. He already knows. And I know that because of the last sentence. Jesus said, where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. That's why I wasn't too bummed when I dropped the headphones, because they're just 50 bucks and they were purchased with a gift card. If I purchased something that was fragile and worth $100,000, I'd be devastated. Why? Because whether you like it or not, your heart follows money. God has never for one instant in His eternal existence needed your cash. What He wants is your heart. He wants you to learn and to love and to trust Him, and He wants you to avoid the foolishness of what James is warning here. He warns you against the foolishness of ruining your life with money because finally James tells us in the last three verses that people who ruin their lives with money forget something. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James would certainly remember that in the Old Testament, Israel was told, if you have someone work in your fields, you pay him that day. Because if he's working in your fields, he's poor and he's counting on his daily pay. So you don't extort him. You don't oppress him. You don't hurt him by refusing to pay him not even one day late. You pay him then because if he doesn't, he will cry out to God and God in heaven will listen. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That old biblical phrase simply means this, the Lord who commands armies. It's a title of strength. It says that the same God who made the world has all the power there possibly is. And He can deal with people and deal with injustice anytime He pleases. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Why is this here? What is James trying to tell them and trying to tell us? He's telling us that people who wreck their lives with money forget something. They forget that God will right all wrongs. All of them. Let me just tell you something very basic. And I hope it's comforting to those of you who have been oppressed and who have suffered, who have been treated poorly. Nobody gets away with anything. Nothing. See, there's all kinds of ways to hurt people with money. I talked to two professional men in the parking lot after the first service. 
They told me how in each of their businesses it is so common not to pay, to delay payment, to refuse payment, and for the person who has a lot of money to say, go ahead, sue me. See what happens. So they settle for a fraction of what they're owed because they don't have the strength to defend themselves. Happens all the time, part of life, part of the industry. That's the way it works. That's just two unsolicited conversations in the parking lot. To say nothing of people who suffer violence, like it says in verse 6, you condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. There's all kinds of evil that people do to others in the name of money, in the name of comfort, in the name of advancement. Here's the good news. Not one of them will get away with anything. Because God, who hears in heaven, will hear the cries and deal with it with justice, or He will change their hearts, make them turn from their sin, and trust Jesus as Savior, as you should, as I should, and then they will be changed. And they will be among those who are righteous, and they will turn their life around and act differently because in their heart, from the inside out, they are different. Either way, nobody ever gets away with anything. So you, please, Christian, just please make sure that the way you use money serves God instead of speaking against you. Every decision you make, every decision I make, saving, earning, spending, giving, it is all in the sight of God in this brief, fragile life that we have. This message was not planned to coincide with our Christmas missions offering, but it's a practical point to share with you. Our Christmas missions offering will go to hard places like Pakistan. People who have never read the Bible and never heard the name of Jesus will hear this glorious gospel, and a few of them, by the grace of God, will be saved. Some of the money will stay right here in Southern California. It'll go to a wonderful organization filled with Christians who go in the middle of the night, usually, to police stations in Los Angeles County. They are going there to begin to care for and provide wraparound care to young children, boys and girls, most of them girls, who have been rescued that night by law enforcement from the evil, the worst crime I personally know of sex trafficking. They'll hear the love of God. They may receive a witness of Christ. And I can't think of anything more important than making the gospel radiate from this pulpit and this little corner all the way around the world. And we have an opportunity to make an eternal difference every time we have income. And there's a struggle in the heart because the Bible says, and often misquoted, Tell you what, it's how it's misquoted first. People misquote the Bible and say that money is the root of all evil. Did you know that's a misquote? What's the real quote? You know the trouble? Money's lovable. It's just so easy to love it because it's needful. You need it to feed yourself. You need it to have shelter. You need it to have clothing. You need it to protect your children. And it's so easy to move from what you need to what you want and fall in love with this thing. And James is saying all of your life, including your money, will be evidence. 
And it will speak to righteousness and love and trust for Jesus that took him at his word and said, I am part of his flock, he will provide for me. Or it will serve as evidence against you that you wrecked your life by missing the entire point of the money and the time God gave you. This is not a criticism against the rich as a group. This is a harsh warning and an invitation to Christians not to ruin their lives by the way they use their money. Money's a powerful tool. It can save a life. It can bring comfort. It can make the gospel of Jesus shine into places where it never has before. Because through financial sacrifice from some and great personal courage by others, the name of Christ reach people who otherwise, humanly speaking, never would have heard it. And we get to be a part of all that. Not all of us will do the same thing. Not all of us have the same capacity in any way, talent or time or finances. But we get to be a part of this. Please, Crosspoint, let's make sure that the way we use money serves God instead of speaking someday against us. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, that's what matters most. All of this is just good wisdom from James to Christians. If you don't know Christ, please, my invitation to you, especially if it's money that has kept you from God, is to trust Him now. Let's pray. Friends who've been coming to church here for weeks or months, maybe years, but you're not certain that Jesus is your Savior, could I please invite you to cross that line this morning? You know what's been holding you back. You know why you've been putting Him off. Will you name it and be done with it, please? And say, Jesus, I'm, I'm here to surrender. I'm turning away from those things that I've put ahead of you. I'm turning away from the things I've used to put you off. Postpone trusting you. I'm done with that. I'm trusting you this morning. Please save me. Make me your disciple. Put me in the flock. Call out to him and ask him to save you. If you do, there's a card in your bulletin. Please fill it out and let us know. We'll be the happiest people on earth. We'll pray with you and for you. We'll help you in every way we can to begin to grow in the new life that Jesus will give you this morning if only you'll trust him. And Christians, just a little bit of money, just enough to live like these first disciples, or enough money that you have to choose what to do with it and how to spend it. Make sure you use it for eternal purposes, lest it wreck your life. Father, comfort us, give us encouragement, give us correction, give us blessing and favor, whatever each of us needs. With the jobs and the families and the needs and the troubles that we each have, thank you that you can take care of each of us. Show us what we each should do next to obey what you've taught us to take heed of the warning you've given us. Lord, may we always live and spend and give and serve and buy so that money speaks for us instead of against us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.